When my son was less than a year old, we were visiting my father-in-law who at the time lived in Beaverdam, Virginia, and lived out on a probably about 10 acres or so, had a large garden and all of that out in front of the house. And one afternoon, I took my son and was holding him. He was probably about six or seven months old. And I began to walk down the tree line of the lot. And there were various trees there, pine trees, oak trees, etc. And I had gone up and down that lot while we were dating and since we'd been married. And I never really paid much attention to it. But as I carried Jonathan in my arms and we went down there, his little hands went out and I watched as he began to touch leaves and to uh, feel the leaves and then he would touch pine needles and feel pine needles and the various uh, different types of leaves and the various textures and I was taken back at watching him discover texture and that was something, you know... I just took for granted. I couldn't remember the last time I'd been fascinated with the texture of a pine needle or a, a leaf or a stick or a limb off of a tree, and yet it was just totally mesmerizing him. And as he was discovering that, I was sort of rediscovering that. And I began to realize as we look back on it that what was going on with my son as he experienced texture is that he was discovering that life was not two-dimensional, Life is three-dimensional. You can actually step into it. You can touch it, and you can feel it, and you can experience it. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's so different to look at the picture of a tree or the picture of a leaf as to be able to reach out and touch the leaf and experience the leaf and experience the texture of the leaf. And when God gave, gives us the Holy Spirit, the, one of the reasons He's giving us the Spirit, He wants us to receive the Spirit, is to receive the ability that only He can give us not to see God as being two-dimensional, but rather to see God as three-dimensional, to experience God as three-dimensional, that God is not just someone, the Lord Jesus is not just someone for us to, to sing about from a distance. He's not just someone for us to hear a sermon about and go home. He's not just someone to, to look at pictures of in a children's storybook or in stained glass window. Rather, the idea of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is for us to realize that God is three-dimensional. He wants us to step into Him. He wants us to experience Him. You see, so often what we do with the Holy Spirit is we acknowledge His presence, but we don't experience His presence. And God wants us to do more than acknowledge the reality of the Holy Spirit. He wants us to experience the reality of the Spirit so that we can realize what it is to literally step into the presence of God and know His presence and experience His presence firsthand. And know, if you will, the texture of God and His presence. I don't know if any of you men have ever had this experience or not, but you go to visit a young couple who has just had a baby, and they are so excited, particularly the wife, and you're standing there minding your own business as a guy, 
smiling uncomfortably. And deep in your soul, you have a fear. And your fear is going to be that in the midst of all of this enjoyment, the wife, the new mom, is going to bring the baby over to you and say, would you like to hold this child? And you're standing there like, oh, please don't let that happen. And sure enough, they begin to move in your direction with the baby, and you begin to have a crisis. What am I going to do? Am I going to hold this kid? If I drop this kid, it's probably going to break when it hits the floor, you know, and, and all this kind of stuff. And how about if he uses the bathroom while I'm holding it, etc.? And they come over and they hand the baby to you, and you're trying to look happy and excited while the whole time you're having all this fear, etc., etc. But what is going to happen here? when I receive this child into my hands. And you see, acknowledging the presence of the child in the room is one thing. Holding the child, holding the baby, and experiencing the baby is something else. And I think where we, a lot of times we struggle is we don't mind acknowledging the presence of the Holy Spirit in the room, but we're not really too interested in having Him on our hands. What do we do when the Holy Spirit is on our hands? How do we react to him when he's on our hands? And what the Lord is trying to say to us in the book of Acts in those opening chapters is, I didn't give you the Holy Spirit for you to acknowledge him. I've given you the Holy Spirit for you to experience him. And folks, far too many of us are satisfied with just acknowledging the reality of the Holy Spirit without experiencing the Spirit. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Acts. Chapter 2, beginning with verse 37. Acts chapter 2 and verse 37. 120 disciples gathered in Jerusalem. Jesus has told them to wait and to pray because he wants them to experience the reality of the Spirit. The Spirit comes, as we've seen in recent weeks, with the sound of a mighty and rushing wind. Then tongues of fire separate, come to rest on each of them. They are empowered by God with boldness and courage like they've never known before. They move out into the crowded streets of Jerusalem that are crowded because it's the Feast of Pentecost, and they begin to go, slave and non-slave, men and women, all ages, and they disperse into the crowd, and they begin to boldly share the good news of Jesus Christ with anyone who will listen in the languages of the people who were there. People begin to ask the question, well, what is going on? What is happening? This is weird. Some of them even accuse these disciples of being drunk. Peter stands up and he says, I want to tell you what you're seeing. I want to tell you what you're experiencing. You have stepped into the third dimension. I want you to understand that dimension. And then he begins to bring a message to them in Acts chapter 2. And the essence of the message is this. Number one... You've heard about Jesus. This Jesus was the Son of God. And He was affirmed to you by works, by miracles that He performed, by signs and by wonders. God performed signs, wonders, and miracles in Him and through Him to affirm that He was the Son of God. But you know something Peter says? Your response to Him was that you crucified Him. In fact, repeatedly, Peter says to them, you crucified him. But then he says, God raised him from the dead, and in so doing, he made him Lord and Christ. The one that you crucified, he raised him from the dead. 
And verse 37, the people now respond to what Peter's message is. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And my sermon outline is in the back of your bulletin, and invite you, if you would, to follow along with us. How do we receive into our lives and experience the presence and power of the Holy Spirit? How do we step into that third dimension? Well, notice, first of all, the conviction that's in Peter's message, verse 37. It says that after he brought this message to them, they were cut to the heart. The word there means to pierce something or to stab something, to be stung in a sharp way like when a bee stings you. It was used by Homer, one of the Greek writers of that day, to speak of horses that were dinging the earth with their hoofs. In other words, it wasn't a pleasant experience that they were having. Peter gets up there and he begins to preach and he begins to tell them, he says, listen, what you're seeing is that this Jesus walked among you and God affirmed him by signs and miracles and wonders. God kept saying through one miracle after another miracle after another miracle that he's the son of God, he's the son of God. And how did you all respond to that? He says, you basically just took him and you crucified him, you killed him. But God raised him up from the dead and as the people listened to that message and heard what Peter was saying, they begin to be convicted. It was not pleasant. Peter goes on in verse 40, and he says, this is a crooked generation. How was it crooked? It was crooked in two ways. Number one, it was known for its hypocrisy. Now, the people that he's speaking to here, Acts chapter 1 shows us were religious people. They had come from all over the kingdom uh, and all over the Roman Empire to worship and to be there for Pentecost. They knew how to do religion, and they knew how to do religion well. But the problem was they could do religion in front of people and impress people. But God looked at their heart and he said, your heart is far from me. And the evidence that your heart's far from me is when my son showed up, you not only didn't recognize him, you nailed him to a cross. That's how far you are from me. You see, the greatest deception in the world is not the deception of saying, I don't have time for God or I'm an atheist or I don't go to church. The greatest deception in the world is when I am religious and I get good at religion, but my heart is far away from God. Because you see, when I get good at religion, but I'm not good at Jesus, when I get good at religion, but I'm not good at walking and living in obedience to Him, then when God does show up and works, I reject what God's doing. I don't recognize it. I end up working against it. He says, it's a crooked generation. He says, the message here 
cut them to the heart. It stung them because they begin to realize the intensity and the seriousness of their sin. Now, Peter repeatedly says in this message, you crucified him, you crucified him, you crucified him. That's not a nice message to bring people, that you crucified the Son of God. And you see, this, the crowd that Peter is preaching to here is thousands and thousands of people who have come in for the Feast of Pentecost, but most of those people were not in Jerusalem 40 days earlier when Jesus was crucified. So why does Jesus look into the face, excuse me, why does Peter look into the face of thousands of people who weren't even in Jerusalem and says to them repeatedly, you crucified the Son of God? He doesn't just limit it to the Roman soldiers. He doesn't just say, hey, the, the priest really, you know, they really messed it up and the Roman soldiers did what they were told and they crucified him. He says, you crucified him. Because their sin nailed him to the cross just as much as the sin of the people who actually carried out the physical deed. I see, folks, we were not there physically, but our sin nailed Jesus to the cross as much as the Roman soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross. He died for our sin as much as he died for the very people who were crucifying him. So if Peter was here this morning and he was preaching the same sermon, he would look at us and say, you crucified him. And we would look back and say, how in the world can that be? That was 2,000 years ago. I wasn't even born. I wasn't even a glimmer in my parents' eyes. And he'd look back at us and say, because he had to die for your sin and my sin, as much as he had to die for the sin of the people gathered at the foot of the cross that day, you and I nailed him to the cross. We crucified him. And that's how serious and intense sin is. The intensity and the seriousness of sin is not what our culture says it is. It is what was already said about our sin on the cross. Now notice verse 37, how they respond. They said, brothers, what shall we do? Notice the question. The crowd on the street, what shall we do? What shall we do? What's the question that we tend to ask most of the time in church and in American religious culture today? It's not this question. The question that we ask most of the time and we even promote people asking is, what is God going to do for me? What is God going to give me? When we come to church, what question do we ask? How good is the service going to be? What has God got for me? How is God going to bless me? How good is the sermon going to be? But notice what their question was. What, what can we do? What should we do? It's a listening question. I need to hear more. I need to hear what I need to do to change me. 
You see, I, I don't need to try to come and try to change God. I need to be changed by God. I don't need to stand here in the street today and say, God, bless me. I need to find a way to bless God. What shall we do? And notice the answer he gives him in verse 37. Repent. Repent. It's a very interesting word in the original Greek language of this passage. It's what's called an ingressive aorist. And I'm not trying to bore you with Greek details, but what he's saying here when using this ingressive aorist is he's saying, you've got to repent and you've got to do it right now. It's got to start right now. Repentance is not something you can kick down the road till it is convenient because there will never be a convenient day to repent. And there will never be a day when repentance looks good and is fun. Repentance is difficult and repentance is messy. And the process of repentance is never something that's enjoyable. But he's saying you got to repent and you got to repent right now. The idea of the concept of repentance carries two major thoughts. Number one, you've got to change. You've got to change your mind and you've got to change your life. You've got to turn around and you've got to do it. Second idea right now, immediacy. Repentance. Repentance means that the Spirit of God shows me where I need to change and I make a radical and complete change with Him. Albert Barnes observed, please listen closely to this, false repentance dreads the consequences of sin. True repentance dreads sin itself. I want to read that again. False repentance dreads the consequences of sin. True repentance dreads sin itself. You see, when he told him here, I want you to repent, he was saying, listen... You've you got to stop going the direction you're going, and you've got to turn around. And in turning around, you've got to decide that you're going to follow Jesus, and you're going to walk with Jesus, and you're going to go with Jesus. Now, this repentance is not about a minute. It's not about a morning here in Jerusalem. It is about a lifestyle change forever. You are choosing to say, I'm going to turn my life with His help, and I'm going to go in a different direction and a new direction, and I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to go with Jesus. For as long as Jesus keeps going, I will keep on following. Repentance is not about what happens at an altar at the end of a service that may last 10 or 15 minutes. Repentance is about a choice that I make, a decision I make to change my mind, to change my life, to follow Him and to walk with Him. That's the idea of repentance. Listen to Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. This is prophecy about the coming of Jesus. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, day of Pentecost, a spirit of grace. Now listen to the way the spirit of grace shows up. And please for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. 
What's he saying there? He's saying that on that day that the Spirit of grace is poured out, people are going to look at the Lord Jesus. They're going to see the nail prints in His hand and the nail prints in His feet, and they're going to say, we did that. We are guilty of that. That's what my sin did. And they're not going to walk away. They're going to weep bitterly over it till they get right with God. Chapter 13 of Zechariah, verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. You see, when, when we look at our sin and we acknowledge it for what it is and we're sorrowful for it, we get right with God, what is the result from that? It says that it cleanses us. He opens a fountain to cleanse us from sin, to set us free. I'm too old to, to, to have lived this. Wish I had. But when I was growing up, the old timers used to tell me about what they called a mourner's bench. I don't know if any of y'all have ever heard about that or not. But in the old churches, they used to have mourner's benches, and they were literally benches that were down front, and people would come forward, and they would get on their knees on the mourner's bench, and they would begin to pray and seek God and call out to God and beg God for forgiveness, and it was called a mourner's bench because you did that. You mourned over your sin till you got right with God. So when you got up off the mourner's bench, you knew that you were right with the Lord, and you knew you'd been cleansed and been set free. But you see, folks, what's happened in our churches today Day is we have become too sophisticated to mourn over our sin. We worry about what everybody thinks about us, not what God thinks about us. So we stay in bondage to it instead of being cleansed and set free from it. When was the last time you and I sat down with God in prayer and the Holy Spirit and said, Spirit of God, show me where I've sinned. Show me where I've blown it. Show me what nailed you to the cross. And God, would you break my heart and my soul for what is breaking yours? And God, I want to repent. I want to turn. I want to be changed. I want to, Lord, not stay the same person. God, would you change me? Part of this repentance is valuing Jesus. In 1799, in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, there was a guy by the name of John Reed who had a farm. And on a Sunday morning, his 12-year-old son, Conrad, went down with some of his friends to play in the little Meadow Creek, it was called. And while 12-year-old Conrad was playing in the creek, he noticed a big shiny rock. So he went over there and he got the big shiny rock up, probably with some help, and took it home. And when his dad came home, he showed it to his dad. Now his dad had no training and knew nothing about precious metals. So his dad looked at the big shiny rock and decided that the big shiny rock would be a great doorstop. So he took the shiny rock and he put it up against the doorstop, and for the next three years, the shiny rock propped the door open. And they came and went every day. Finally, he decided that he would take the shiny rock into town to a guy that was supposed to be a silversmith. And he took it in there, and he showed it to the silversmith, and the silversmith basically looked at it, and the guy really didn't know what he was doing. He said, oh, you just got a rock here. So he took it home. 
Then he heard about another silversmith in another town, so he went over there and he showed the rock to that guy, and that guy recognized that what John Conrad had on his hand was gold. And so we told him, this is 17 pounds of pure gold. And John Reed didn't understand the value of gold. So he said, I will give you $3.15 for it. So he sold to the silversmith 17 pounds of pure gold for $3.15, which at that time were valued for $3,600. Can you imagine having 17 pounds of gold propping your door open that you walk by every day and you don't recognize what you've got on your hands. Folks, let me tell you what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. He says, this Jesus that you come in on church on Sunday morning and look at and sing about and hear a sermon about and go on out the door and forget about it until next week, this Jesus that you call on during emergencies but the rest of the time really don't have time for him, this Jesus that you've gotten so used to that you just sort of walk in and out of the door of your life with, this Jesus that you've heard his name over and over and over again, this Jesus is God's goal. And the Holy Spirit helps us recognize what we've got on our hands in him. You see, part of receiving the ministry of the Holy Spirit is learning to value Jesus and who He is and what He is. Notice verse 38. He says you've got to repent. Next, he says you've got to be baptized. Baptism was a way of identifying with Jesus and His people, of publicly declaring, I am His child. How are you going to be baptized? Verse 38, in the name of of Jesus Christ. That means into His authority and into His power. Verse 38. Why? For the forgiveness of sins so He can release you and set you free from sin. And then what does He say? Verse 38. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then you're going to know what it is to enjoy the presence of the Lord in your life. Then you'll know the power, that three-dimensional power of the Spirit of God in your life. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to invite you to receive the work of the Spirit of God right now in your life. First of all, I want to ask us to allow in a time of silent prayer for the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin. And then ask for His forgiveness. And we choose to repent of whatever the Spirit of God is showing us.
And as you move through the process of repentance, and may need to go home this afternoon and just do more work, work with the Lord. I want to invite you to say to the Lord, Lord, I just want to receive the powerful presence and work of the Holy Spirit in my life. I want to step, Lord, into that dimension of just not acknowledging you, but Lord, experiencing you. In just a moment, we will sing a hymn, Victory in Jesus, and receiving the power of the Spirit in our lives brings that victory in Jesus. The altar will be open if you need to come and just get before the Lord and do business with Him. Feel free to come. If you need to receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior today, I invite you to come. If you need to identify with Him and say publicly you're His follower through baptism, we invite you to come. Lord, we receive what You have for us. And we ask, Lord, what do we need to do? Let's stand together and sing and come if you will.